Okay, you stragglers, come on in. You know, there is no reason for anyone on this day to be coming in late. You had an extra hour to get up and get ready. Ginger and I were up at 5 o'clock this morning, just wide awake. Well, welcome, everyone, this evening this morning. And um, just really one announcement this morning. Uh, this is the first, coming up is the first Thursday of the week, which means we have a sing-along with Amy. And just a reminder, so uh, be in front of your computers or TVs or whatever on Thursday night at 7 o'clock. And Amy will have another beautiful setting of songs, I'm sure. And I hope you'll join in with us. We'll be sending you links, but you can always, you just always go to the website and on the front page, you'll see her standing by her piano, and you just click there, and that'll, that'll get you there uh, on there. Um, let's prepare now our hearts for worship. Psalm 36, we read, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And we come before you, O fountain of life. 
the fountain of every blessing. And we have come to worship you, to give you thanksgiving for all the blessings that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the anointing of your spirit to be upon us, that our worship will be pleasing to you as we come before you because of Jesus Christ and in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Come thou fount of every blessing.
Our Father, we give you praise as the one who dwells in heaven, and we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, who did not hold on or count equality with God the Father something to be grasped, but was willing to let go of that and empty himself and come to this earth. Uh, we thank you and praise you for sending our Lord Jesus Christ here upon this earth to dwell among us, uh, to not only dwell among us, but to serve us. Not only to serve us, but to serve us upon a cross and there to make atonement for our sins. That we who were not a people, we who were your enemies have now been made your children, and now our destiny is heaven itself. And we give you praise for what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Our Father, we pray that um, all the more that we will hallow and honor your name as your children, uh, as citizens of your kingdom. We pray that particularly uh, in this coming week with the elections of our country. Keep ever before us our citizenship that is in heaven and all the more that we will be faithful to our King as we go to the polls, as we uh, carry out our duties, responsibilities as citizens and in our country. Our Father, we pray that whatever takes place this week, that, we will, that you will keep before us who our King is, and that you remain seated upon that throne in heaven, that that has not changed, that we remain in your hands. And may we therefore go about in uh, our communities, our, our schools, in our workplaces, wherever we are, showing forth what it is to live as followers of Jesus Christ. Show what it is to hold on to uh, the values, uh, the teachings, the commandments that you have given to us particularly the commandments, to love our God with all our heart and mind and strength, particularly to love our neighbors, ourselves. Pray that particularly again in this week. There will be much, as there already has been, but there will even be more animosity that is expressed, much fear, much bitterness. And our Father, may we show forth what it is to have peace in Jesus Christ, what it is to... Uh, to know our destiny, but what it is to love and to love those who would consider themselves our enemies so that we will be those who turn the other cheek, who give the extra cloak, who walk the extra mile, all because we are citizens of your kingdom. We pray our Father for all those involved uh, in seeing that the elections are carried out. We think of those who will be manning the uh, poll stations. What great responsibility and pressures will be placed upon them. What scrutiny they will be undergoing. And we pray for them. Give them strength. Give them wisdom. Uh, give them good uh, spirit of integrity as they carry out their labors. We pray for postal workers. And Father, for all the pressures that is upon the postal service at this time. And our Father, these these men and these women at the polls and, and the postal, they are our neighbors. They are us. And so all the more we pray uh, for them. We pray, uh, our Father, uh, that you would uh, so give to us 
what is needed uh, for this day, that you would feed us with the bread of your word. All the more strengthen our faith. We pray for your provisions for us physically. There are those in our church who are ill, and we pray for their healing. There are those who go through uh, ongoing chronic pain, and we pray again for your grace uh, upon them, for, their, for what is needed uh, to carry on each day. We pray, our Father, uh, for uh, loved ones whom we have, who have gone astray, who have ever perhaps have never confessed Jesus Christ, or they did, and yet now they have walked away. Father, our hearts are heavy for them. We pray that by the work of your Spirit that you would bring them back home. We pray that you would give us ourselves wisdom as we reach out to them and love them and care for them. We pray, our Father, that you would give us a spirit to forgive others and that we pray that you would forgive our debts. Protect us, lead us not into temptation. Protect us from the evil one who's ever against us. Protect us from the dangers of this world. We make this prayer acknowledging that to you belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Christ's name, amen.
Well, I have to, uh, to make a confession. This, this pandemic is wearing on me. It was kind of fun at the beginning. And uh, Ginger and I ate everything in our pantry, trying to keep from going into the grocery store. And it was kind of fun to see how long we could go. And uh, someone rescued us one time. They brought toilet paper. and I mean, it was just kind of, kind of neat. But I tell you, I was expecting us to be back, everybody back together by Easter, not still being in this uh, nine months later today. It was, it was exhilarating at the beginning, like I said, to um, just trying to keep the services going. I tell you, we, we need to be thankful for the Lord bringing Chris Hedlich to this church. That's, he made that happen. I liked actually writing the daily emails. And then you got to thank Barbara Pomeroli. She called everybody, everybody in that directory, not once, but two times to provide information on the quizzes. But like I said, it's, I wasn't expecting we're starting November and we're still in this. And it's getting tiring. Well, our author's readers had not realized how in the, in the excitement of their new faith, as time was going to go on, that it was going to get tiring, particularly because they were going to be facing oppression. And they're weary now. And some of them are starting to waver a little bit in their faith. And indeed, our author fears that some of them are about to fall away altogether. And that's why he has written this letter. He's given warning a, a number of times about not straying, wavering, particularly in chapter 6, and he's going to give this warning again in our text this morning. So look with me, either in your Bibles or you see the insert in your bulletin. Verses 26 through 31 I'm going to read. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think you agree. This is a fearful passage to contemplate, but we must. We have it right here in front of us. First question we want to ask is, to whom is this dire warning directed? Well, he tells us, it's for those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. So their sin is not a momentary lapse of judgment. It is not inadvertent sin. It is willful, and it is a committed sin. Now, specifically, what is the sin? Is it lying? 
Is it anger? Is it coveting? Well, it appears to be apostasy. Those who, after receiving the knowledge of truth, those who have once believed the truth, they have abandoned it. So our author does his best to impress upon his readers the terribleness of the consequences. He does a pretty good job, doesn't he? He notes here, first of all, the loss of hope. For such persons, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now let's think back for a moment. All we had been learning from our author about sacrifices. He talked about how the sacrifices in the Old Testament, how they were repeated again and again because people kept committing them again and again. Now, he's contended that these sacrifices, they never really were effective. Even back then, they were intended only to atone for, again, inadvertent sin. Willful transgression of the law. There were no sacrifices for that. They could not be atoned for. Only thing left was judgment. Let me read a passage from Numbers 19, 30 to 31 to illustrate. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. There's no sacrifice for that kind of sin. And the second thing he emphasizes here is the pain of the judgment. It is fearful. It is a fury of fire that consumes the adversaries. This is hell fire preaching. He is warning them of the judgment of hell that awaits those who deny their Lord. And then the third thing that he does is he makes a comparison with the law of Moses in a way that's going, that accentuates this crime. And he shows how it is made personal to God. Again, the law of Moses in that system, there were a number of laws which if you broke these laws, the penalty was death. I mean, there was, of course, the law against murder, but there were lesser laws as well. For example, laboring on the Sabbath day. So there's a record of a man who goes out, he collects firewood on the Sabbath day. He and his family are stoned to death. And so our author is saying, look, how much worse do you think it's going to be for someone who has, what does he say, trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned uh, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, by which he had been set apart and, and placed in that covenant, who has outraged the Spirit of grace? If if God is willing to pronounce death for picking up sticks, how 
do you think he would react to trampling on his son, outraging the Holy Spirit? Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, these words are shocking. I mean, they are shocking. I mean, when I, when I read this, I, you know, I imagine I got, of heathens stomping all the images of Christ, maybe mixing blood together somehow or, or chanting profanities. Well, all he's talking about here are people who are just giving up their faith. And maybe even then, not completely. They might be like, for example, uh, the believers in Galatia who were trying to, well, incorporate the law of Moses you know, with their faith in Jesus and try to mix it together in some way. But whatever the case, clearly, here's what he's trying to say to us. God takes apostasy personally. He's like a father who tells his son who's just done something, something foolish. He says, you have just spat in my face. God's son has gone to the cross for their sins. He has shed his blood for them. The Holy Spirit has enlightened them to this truth. And they, in response, have spat in the face of God by rejecting it all. And you recall that our author has used similar language back in chapter 6. And he noted back then that those who have fallen away, he says it's impossible to restore them to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. They are holding him up to contempt. So again, what he's trying to get across is this. He's saying in the church, he's saying it now, that God takes personally apostasy. Now let's continue in our passage, verses 32 to 34. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So after making this, this dire warning, he now appeals to his readers, you might say their better nature, as shown in their the faithfulness that they've already shown in the midst of persecution. And here we get a glimpse, by the way, of the kind of persecution they have been going through. There's public reproach. By some means, they have been denounced. They have been ridiculed before the community. Their name has been dishonored. There is affliction. Probably involves some kind of physical infliction. Some kind of definitely mental affliction. Most likely as well, economic conditions. We know that for some of them, their property was plundered. It was taken from them. Maybe it was taken from them when they were placed in prison, as we're told here. Well, even so, they handled it well. They were willing to endure such suffering, and they supported one another. You know, you can see now why our author was concerned that they weren't meeting together again. Get back to being together again, because when you were together, you were loving one another. 
You were doing good works for one another. You were there when each other was going through hard times. Now, he notes here two motivations by which they were uh, showing this kind of compassion and love. One was compassion itself. No doubt, out of compassion that they felt from their Savior who had died for them, so they were showing compassion to each other. And the other motivation is put in here about knowing the treasure that they possess. Unlike their physical property, they had a possession that could not be taken away. That possession was the gospel. That's the confession that he's referred to uh, several times about holding on fast to that confession, to that gospel. Now he then, with both warning and encouragement, wraps up his appeal to them. And you'll see this in 35 through 38. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So he's saying to them, first of all, do not throw away your confidence, your confession of the gospel. Do not lose sight of your reward. And he, he quotes here from Habakkuk, in chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. And he's making two points here. Number one, hold on to the promise of the Messiah's return. He is going to come. You can believe that. You can, you can have confidence in that. Secondly, when he does come, do not be found faithless. Now this matters to Jesus, we know. Back in Luke 18.8, he had said, when the Son of Man comes, when I come back, will he find faith on earth? Will he find his people have remained faithful to him? So our author then concludes with an encouraging word that he wraps up the purpose of the letter. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, and preserve their souls. When all is said and done, just like he did back in chapter 6, he, he really does believe in their, that they have true faith, that they, they are those who are faithful. He said kind of the same thing back in chapter 6, verse 9, after he had said, given these dire warnings. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He's the coach who is urging his team to finish, their, finish the game. He's seen some of them are starting to, to waver, not sure they're going to make it. So he's, he's pressing them on. Persevere, however difficult the task is, however tough the opposition may, not, it may be. He knows that they have it in them to do so. And so his whole purpose here, even with this dire warning, is not to discourage them, it's to motivate them all the more. Finish the race. And so he would say the same to us. Keep the faith. Curse 
persevere. Do not waver. Today, we are entering into an unknown future, don't we? Faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior well, is no longer respected in our society. Obedience to Jesus Christ is increasingly not tolerated. And those of you, and those of whom you, you know who are young, you know young people will be facing persecution. It will take place. You'll be laughed at. Uh, you'll be made fun of. You'll be shunned at times. You might someday be denied participation in clubs. When you get into ready to go into the workplace, there will be jobs that are off limits to you. It's already happening now to young people in college, maybe even in high school. It's happening now to those trying to get jobs because they do not fit the culture is the reason that is given for why they have been denied uh, places in certain jobs and even certain scholarships. They just don't fit anymore. The church, too, itself is going to face persecution. Like I, 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 don't, I don't think it matters who is going to be elected on, on Tuesday. The future, the long-range future, does not look good in our country. Will you, will you persevere? See, that's what matters. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Will we persevere? And what trips many of us up is we, we think, we have it kind of in our minds, that what matters in life is to be happy. And that's how we judge everything. A marriage is a good marriage if, well, the spouses are happy. A job is a good job if the workers are happy. Doesn't God want me to be happy? I remember the tearful young woman asking me, trying to justify her sin. And it was a sincere question. She had found her soulmate. Unfortunately, she was already married. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Don't you want your children to be happy? Parents are challenged today when their children marry unbelievers or nowadays when they yield to same-sex marriage. Doesn't, isn't that what matters? Doesn't love win every time? Well, what should win every time for the Christian is faithfulness. And the love that should win every time is love for one's Lord. The same Lord who out of love shed his blood for us. The same Lord who underwent all kinds of persecution, pain and sorrow to win for us eternal life. And that, by the way, is what should be our ultimate source of happiness. It's this salvation. Because this salvation is eternal. And it is born from the pure, holy love of our God. And one thing that I know many of you are probably unsettled by in this passage 
as you were probably back in chapter 6. And you're unsettled because of this. You have loved ones who have gone astray. They did waver. They have left the faith. And you wonder, after reading this, have they passed the point of no return? I want to read a story was told by a colleague of mine, uh, Rick Phillips, that he records in a commentary that he wrote on, on Hebrews. And he speaks of a, of a woman that had been, I guess, in his church at one time. This woman had fallen deeply into sin. At one point, she visited our home and lamented this with tears. She attended church with us and went back to where she lived, determined to do better. However, she soon fell in with an unbelieving crowd. And the next time I spoke with her, she informed me that she had come to realize the falsehood of Christianity. Unable to answer her atheist friends, she began reading Nietzsche and other atheist philosophers and rejected the faith. Time passed until I was asked to perform a wedding in this woman's hometown and she was invited. Sure enough, she was there at the wedding reception. Reluctantly, she approached me, and after a brief conversation, she agreed to drive me to the airport that evening. Along the way, she recounted to me the various philosophies that had led her away from Christ, many of them advocating ideas the writer of Hebrews wanted his own flock to avoid. I simply asked her, tell me, Which came first, your descent into sin or these philosophical convictions? Was it the philosophy that persuaded you of sin or the sin that persuaded you of the philosophy? To my astonishment, she broke down at once into tears, admitting that atheism had gripped her only after she had fallen badly into sin. However, she insisted she was no longer a Christian, but an apostate. She had betrayed the Lord. Even if she wanted to come back, she said, citing passages like, the, like this one, her sins had damned her forever. As our conversation progressed, now at the airport, I confronted her with a question at the heart of what our passage from Hebrews is all about. I asked her, Have you renounced Jesus Christ? Can you do that now? Can you say that he is not the Son of God, that he did not die upon the cross for sinners? Do you repudiate Jesus Christ? If you can do that, I will admit that you are damned. I don't know which of us was more nervous, but she could not repudiate Jesus. And that evening I had the privilege to evangelize her all over again, starting with the cross where Jesus took the wrath of God in her place. She had been backslidden, badly so, but not apostate. And as of this writing, she has repudiated her life of sin. Is your loved one apostate? Are you? Like our author, I can give you warning. I can refer to you to such a passage as this and make clear the danger of rejecting Jesus. 
But as long as the Lord has given another day of life to you or to your loved ones, well, who can say that anyone is beyond hope? Remember again Jesus' parables. The shepherd goes after the sheep that is strayed. The prodigal son, though he turns, he finds his father running to him. And Peter, one time in in 2 Peter chapter 3, he's responding to cynics who don't believe the Lord will ever return. And he says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let me tell you this. If your loved one has strayed, even has denied their Lord, never give up praying for them. Persevere in prayer. Persevere in love. Hold fast to your own confession as you continue to love them. If you are the one who is strayed, let the prodigal son be the sign for you that if you return, you will find your God not just waiting for you, you'll find him running to you. If you turn to your Lord Jesus Christ, you will find that he never gave up interceding for you. Remember, he's your high priest. He is your sympathetic brother. He is your Lord and your Savior. And should you ever falter, know that he will lift you up. Should you ever stray, know that he awaits. He awaits you with open arms. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, our great God. We thank you for the love that caused you to send him in the first place, for that love that is a steadfast love, by which you will continue to seek after your children. Never astray, far astray we may have gone, you will bring us back. We pray that, and I pray that now, Father, for loved ones who have gone astray, who have wandered away. I pray for that work of your Spirit to bring them back, to draw them back, that they might know the mercy and the love that is in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, O great God. Joy, then your spirit.
shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.